This is a Together Church podcast, a place to explore meaning, friendship, and faith in Jesus. We'd love you to connect with our community. Find out more at togetherchurch.com.au. In the 13th century, a German king named King Frederick II conducted a diabolical experiment known as the language deprivation experiment. He wanted to discover what God's language was, the language of Adam and Eve, and he was curious to know whether the language was Hebrew or Greek or Latin or Arabic. And so what Frederick did is he, he, he recognized that children grew up learning the language of the surrounding culture, he, children learned the language of their parents, and so he wanted to discover what language children would naturally learn if they grew up not hearing any language. Strange experiment, but it actually happened. And so Frederick took babies from their mothers at birth and he placed them in the care of nurses who were forbidden to speak in their hearing. And nurses could feed and bathe these babies uh, and care for their physical needs, but they were not allowed to speak in their hearing. They were forbidden to coo or to cuddle the babies or to touch the infants. They weren't allowed to provide any emotional care or verbal interaction with these babies. Uh, and you know what, what was the result? What language do you think the babies ended up speaking? Here's the tragic thing. Uh, the experiment was cut short because every single baby died. Everyone. Not a single infant survived their first year of birth. Uh, and rather than teach us about language and culture, we actually learnt a lot about humans and what we need to survive as people. Uh, and so what really Frederick discovered through this terrible experiment was that we can't live without love. Humans need affection, they need physical touch, they need to be cared for and needed. We literally die for a want of love. So, look, we all long for love. Uh, we long to be embraced by another person, to experience lifelong relationship, to be known and to know someone intimately and closely. We long for someone to laugh and cry with, to share highs and lows with, to be physically intimate with and to share life's journey. Love is one of our highest emotions, it's one of our strongest motivations, and there is a longing for love in the human heart to share life with someone special. Uh, we also long to belong, we long to be in community, we long to be loved by friends and to be part of a people who are our own. Uh, but our, our longing for love is not just limited to people, it's also found in God. And so Blaise Pascal famously suggested that there is a God-shaped hole in the heart of every person, which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God. And he was talking specifically about Jesus in this context. And what Pascal was saying is that uh, our longing for love is not just fulfilled uh, in a human sense by people, but we, it, it, our, our desire to be loved and embraced by another person points to our greater longing for love by our maker, by our creator, by, by the one who loved us and who made us his own, the God of the universe. Uh, and so today we embark on a new series called Longing for Love, 
about love, sexuality, and gender, as Kylie mentioned. And it's a series that I've had on my heart for ages. I actually had speakers lined up last year (laughs) pre-COVID, and then the world changed. But uh, the timing hasn't been right, or I haven't had the bravery to speak on this very challenging topic. So, um, But practically, when I think about it as a community... I think the timing is really important. We have a heap of amazing young people, tweens and teens, uh, who are moving towards adulthood. And you know, as a pastor, but also as a parent you know, of young people myself, uh, you know, I, I'm acutely aware of how complex it is to grow up in our culture. And it's really tough to be an apprentice of Jesus and to seek to follow his ways and to be surrounded by the, the hypersexualized culture of our day. And so I really want us to be able to support our young people and to support one another as a community to raise uh, people in this culture. Uh, okay, so look, there have been two uh, what we call kairos moments or God moments that shaped my thinking a while ago that this is such an important topic. Uh, And I feel like God has been specifically nudging me to speak about sexuality across our community. And and both kind of moments came by reading uh, books. I'm such a geek. Uh, One was by um, a guy called Rod Dreher and the other by N.T. Wright, who's a theologian. So my first aha moment, um, slide ahead, is, uh, was from reading The Benedict Option by Catholic writer Rod Dreher. And it's a book about culture in the church and about how we might become uh, faithful communities surrounded by an anti-Christian culture that is seeking to kind of tear our framework apart. It's, it was a fascinating book, somewhat depressing, but uh, a very good read. Uh, But this quote really spoke to me. You know, sometimes you read a quote or you read something and it's like, that is God speaking to me. So God spoke to me through this quote. He said, far too many pastors are scared to talk about sex. I said that word in church for the first time. There we are. They need to get over it. It is hard to live chastely in this eroticized culture. Pastors shouldn't make it harder by denying their people the teaching and support they need to be faithful. Silence from the pulpit and from the church's ministers and teachers conveys the message that sex and sexuality aren't important and that the church has nothing to offer on the matter. And so, look, I read this and I'm like, oh, I do feel a bit convicted reading this, <coughs> reading this quote because, I mean, I, I know we've only been a church community together, church for a few years, but we connected for years before that as a, a group of missional people called Third Place Communities, and in all my time in Hobart, uh, we've never once talked in depth about sexuality and about God's perspectives on sex and gender and life uh, and relationships. And so I, I believe that Dre is right, that, that not only is it hard to talk about God and, and God's views and perspectives on sex and sexuality, um, it's, it's even harder to train uh, our, our communities and our kids uh, in this complex world, and so it's just super important that we talk about it, even though uh, for many of us, some of us might find this a challenging topic to talk about or uh, unpack in a church community. <clears throat> but the reality is that our kids, I'm convinced, need us to talk. Talk regularly, talk often, and talk about what God is saying into this space. Um, and, and because the alternative 
is that, that if we don't apprentice and disciple our children in God's ways, well, then the culture through osmosis is an actively, uh, evangelically training and equipping and, and apprenticing our children in the world's ways. Uh, and we know this. You know, we know that just through popular media, our, our kids are learning to obsess over their bodies in, in quite unhealthy ways. And, and uh, they're learning to normalize uh, dysfunctional expressions of sexuality and gender in a way that is very far from the imagination of God. They're learning to devalue marriage uh, and, and lose the beauty of what it means to be a man and a woman, that we're losing the essence of manhood and femininity. Uh, and, and we're entering an experimental culture where we're encouraging our young people to try anything and everything in order to be free. And the result is a whole lot of pain and shame and anxiety uh, and confusion and actually a loss of healthy relationships, healthy connections and, and healthy life, healthy spirituality. And so now the thing about God is, well, the thing about God values us. He loves us. He values our young people. He values our relationships. He values our communities. God made sex and sexuality and he made us to be sexual beings and he has a wonderful plan for our relationships, our families and our lives, but God's ways are radically different nowadays than the, the ways in which the world shapes the story and that's why there's such a challenge for us. Do you follow? Yeah. Uh, but we want better for this than our kids. You know, we, I want better than Tinder for my kids. I really, really do. Do you know what I mean? And, and we should want more for our kids and for them to have more fruitful, more joyful and more enriching relationships than the world can offer them. And God provides a way forward. And that is why we speak. We want our kids and we want our communities to love their bodies, to love other people and to experience sexual love in a holy and life-giving, uh, sacrificial, beautiful, lasting way. Uh, and that's really my heart behind this series. Yep. And we want this, don't we? <laughs> Not just for our kids, we want it for ourselves. <laughs> uh, because I'm under no illusion that as adults, all of we have everything together either. No matter whether we're married or whether we're not. Okay. Uh, one thing I would like to say, and this isn't to anyone particular, I've heard this from so many different Christians over so many different years in different forms, but a lot of Christians tell me that we should simply stop obsessing over sex as the church. We just, sex, 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 is all you hear about from the church, and it's all the media talks about in terms of what the church wants to talk about. And, uh, and a lot of Christians have said to me, let's just not make it such a big deal you know, why focus on sex all the time when there's bigger issues like climate change and justice for the poor and consumerism and greed? Do you follow? Uh, I don't know if you've heard this or if you think it yourself. And I've certainly thought it myself. Um, and I wish I could agree. Unfortunately, I can't agree. It's easier to agree, actually. It reduces the tension. However, uh, Drea continues, and this is the second bit that was like, ugh. Um, he said, when darkness tried to fall over my bones. <laughs> wow. Are you, are you censoring my sermon, Kylie? All right, here we go. Here we go. Drea says, rightly ordered sexuality is not at the core of Christianity. So we're absolutely right. It is not at the core. 
But he says it is so near to the centre that to lose the Bible's clear teaching on this matter is to risk losing the fundamental integrity of the faith. This is why Christians who begin by rejecting sexual orthodoxy end either by rejecting Christianity themselves or by laying the groundwork for their children to do so. There's a pretty hard comment, but what he's saying is this, that um, sex is not at the centre of Christianity. We don't read it a lot. It's not mentioned a lot in the Gospels. However, in the arc of Scripture, there is a very clear and consistent message and a clear narrative about God's view on human sexual relationships, marriage, uh, gender, and, and how we interact. Um, and communities who reject the Bible's message in order to reduce the tension with our culture end up either rejecting Jesus as a whole, we stop obeying him as apprentices of Jesus, or we stop showing our kids how to do it. And that, that's what he's saying. And I, I would love to throw in the towel and say anything goes, but I think Dre is right. We need to keep the tension, and in that space, God blesses us and shows us a way forward because he will provide a way forward to, to bless us with the life he calls us to live. Uh, and he finishes with this quote, the church needs to raise its own flag every now and then. And some of us read that and go, oh, let's not raise our own flag. Um, but what's interesting is Dre is not saying we should be raising it politically and in the public sphere, but he's saying, gee, we need to be raising our own flag in our own communities and teaching our own people God's view on sex and sexuality. And if we're not doing that, we're going to struggle in our families, in our communities, in our homes. Do you follow? We should celebrate God's beautiful imagination for what sex and sexuality looks like. Uh, and yet many of us are too scared. And, and I would say that that has included myself for a long time. Let's wave our own flag. So let's pause for a moment. Now that I've just started this very you know, relaxing sermon, um, what do you think about waving our own flag? You know, what, what might be stirring up with that term? And uh, in order to apprentice our own communities in God's way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When I read that, I suppose the idea of waving a flag is traditionally seen as a, you wave your flag, you celebrate, you talk about what you own and what you, what you care about. I think what's happened in my understanding is we see uh, in the public sphere particular Christians and particular denominations waving the, the sexual flag so strongly and in such a an unloving way that many of us decide we'll put our flag away and not talk about it at all. But I reckon we can find a way through in a loving way. Thanks for the question. Just pause for a moment. Okay, my second Kairos moment and I'm seeking to frame this series, but the second Kairos moment came from N.T. Wright. And, uh, and N.T. Wright, who's a great theologian, he was, uh, I, I just read this quote, and he says, there is confusion upon confusion, upon confusion, so not just two confusions, upon confusion in every, related, in every, in every area related to this issue. And it was like, I don't know, sometimes God just kind of, you know, uses particular passages or words to kind of speak to you. And, and I was like, oh, that's it. Because I've been feeling like I need to speak on this topic, but I haven't known how. So the why question was answered, but I didn't know how to start because it's just so complicated and, um, and it's so challenging. And so I read this and I realized that that is my struggle, that there are so many confusions 
that I don't even know where to start because we all come from different perspectives. Let me explain what I mean with a story. Okay, So I used to be a physiotherapist, as many of you know, a long time ago. And Kylie and I, before we had kids, we went to England. I worked in Scotland and the UK as a physiotherapist. And I kept getting strange looks because I kept asking my low back pain clients to take off their pants. And, uh, and, the, and everyone like, you know, it's pretty normal in Australia. It was pretty normal for a physio. You see a physio, we ask you to take off your pants. But um, they just looked really odd and kind of looked at me tentatively. Anyway, what I realized is that um, it's not that the Brits were particularly prudish, but uh, pants in Australia means trousers, whereas pants in England means your underpants. <laughs> and I definitely didn't want people to take off their underpants. <laughs> yeah, that dodgy Australian physio. Um, so it wasn't until someone mentioned to me that the word pants in the UK means undies, I'm like, oh, I don't want them to remove their pants. I'll be asking them to remove their trousers from now on. Um, and until I fixed up this language confusion, I could not understand people's reactions and they could not understand my instructions. And so the, if the words we use and the words we debate don't mean the same things, then we can't understand each other and we can't have a meaningful conversation. Do you follow? And the same is true and deeply problematic, I believe, when talking about sexuality, gender and marriage in Australian society because the words we're using ain't even the same words and therefore we can't even have a conversation because there's confusion upon confusion upon confusion. And we've explored in the last series, and we are like fish in water, swimming in a culture where we, we cannot describe or articulate the unwritten ground rules that shape how we act and how we think. And that is particularly true around this hot topic issue. Uh, and, and so it's hard to have a conversation when the words we use don't mean the same thing, and when in more so the stories behind the words we use are so radically different from the stories behind the words that our popular culture is using that we can't meet and talk. And so N.T. writes, confusion upon confusion uh, is, is helpful because I realise that actually to have this conversation, even in our own community, we have to go right back to the beginning and build some foundations. We need to understand why we use the words we use and, and what they mean so that we can actually have a conversation and understand God's perspective in a secular culture. So, uh, let me give you an example, just the word love, okay? Love is love. We've all seen this slogan, we've seen this bumper sticker. Uh, it has been one of the kind of the catch cries of the LGBTQI community during the same-sex marriage debates. And uh, so we've seen this, and, and love is love. It sounds absolutely right. You know, who wants to be anti-love? I mean, no one does, right? And, um, but it depends on what we mean by the word love. Same as underpants versus pants. Okay, again, our culture says support love, uh, love wins, love is a basic human right. I absolutely agree with these statements. I agree that love wins. I agree we should support love. 
And I agree that love is a human right. We should not take babies away like King Frederick II did and unlove them. Okay, I mean, who wouldn't, who wouldn't agree with these statements? But are we talking about the same idea? And that is the challenge. What do we mean by love? What is our primary imagination? What is our starting point and expression of what it means to love? So do we mean, for example, sex and feelings or sexual relationships or sexual experiences? Are we talking just about people and the way we interact in a, in a kind of a physical sense? Or are we talking about a person who came in the form of God who died on a cross for enemies that didn't even love him back? Like just that alone is a pretty different understanding and a different starting point for the word itself. Do you follow? Another foundational idea, which I think we have to unpack if we're going to understand how to communicate, is freedom. Uh, And freedom may not sound like it's directly related to love, but it's absolutely fundamentally related. And if we can't understand freedom in the way that God understands it, it's going to be very hard to end up with his conclusions. So our definition of freedom will deeply shape our conclusions about what we do with our bodies and how we conduct our relationships. What is freedom? It's a really important question. How does it relate to sex and love? Is freedom the ability to do what we want whenever we want it, as long as it doesn't hurt someone? Is that freedom? Or is freedom the ability to choose what is ultimately good and just, loving and life-giving, not just for ourselves but for others in community in line with God's instructions? Again, our definition of freedom will totally change how we shape the conversation. Uh, I'll fly through these. You know, what is sex? How do we define it? Had to make sure that there was a PG picture. Um, is sex purely physical? Uh, is, it, is it purely physical? Is it, is it recreation or relaxing entertainment between consenting adults, as our culture would tell us? Or is it something more? Is it spiritual? Is it purposeful? Is it sacred? Is there a holiness to it? Is there a purpose to it outside of fun? And how does sex relate to sexuality? You know, what does it mean to be a man and a woman? How does our sexuality and our, how do our sexuality and spiritualities link? And are they linked? And can we express our sexuality outside of sexual relationships, even if we're single? Can we express our sexuality in a, in a beautiful, rich way? I believe we can, and that's something we need to explore. Big questions, I'm sorry, but I'm trying to lay the foundations for where we need to go. Uh, what is gender? How is gender and sex connected? Is it binary or fluid? How does God shape this conversation? Is the physical world disconnected entirely from the spiritual world as our culture is starting to teach us? which is called Gnosticism, or is the physical and spiritual world interconnected? And how does that shape our perspective on gender and sex? The last question I have is, what is marriage? And linked with that, what is singleness? Um, And I don't mean what is marriage from a legal definition point of view, like you see in politics. Is it between a man and a woman, or a human and a human? I'm talking about what is the substance of marriage? What is the essence of that word itself? Is it simply the next step when you have shacked up for a decade? Is it, is it an expression of your feelings towards someone? Or is it sacred and covenantal? Does it relate to faith and God and community? 
Again, the words we use and the stories we hold behind these words are totally different. Yeah. Okay, so you can see why I was worried about starting this series. <laughs> They're really big questions. And I'm like, where do we start? But I think we have to start by unlocking them bit by bit with the, as best we can with as much grace and wisdom and humility as we can and hopefully clarity. My, my, my heart is at the end of this series, you won't be confused about the answers to those questions. You, you might wrestle deeply with them, but they won't be confusing answers because God's instructions are really clear in Scripture. The question is, how do we wrestle with them in our own context? You follow? Okay. Uh, and I'm going to fly through this very quickly and we'll look at some Scripture. What I, would, what I believe is if we're going to understand the confusions upon confusions, we need to have a starting point. And the starting point, I believe, is not actually about sex or humans or sexuality. It's actually the question, is God real and is God good? And if we start with that question and then ask and answer all the questions I've just laid out, then you'll end up understanding your identity in Christ in, in a quite a different way. Uh, and, it's, and it's a journey that helps us to discover our sexual identity from the starting point of God. Okay, so we ask and answer the questions, what is love, what is freedom, what is sex, what is sexuality, what is gender, what is marriage, what is singleness? But if we begin and end with God, that God is good and God is real and he has a plan for us, then you ask those questions, you get to the other side and you end up with what we call Christian orthodoxy. It's a logical progression once we understand what God says about each and every question that leads to an understanding that the church has had in all times and places about human love and relationships. The alternative is if we don't start with God being love, God being good and God being real. If we start somewhere else, we end up with radically different conclusions. So if we start with love being love, you know, it's what secularism does. Mark Sayers says that secularism is Christianity minus Jesus. You take God out. It's perfect. Just take God out. Instead of God being love, love is love. You start with ourselves and then you ask and answer the same questions. You end up with a totally different worldview of experimentation, of anything goes, of feeling-based, relationship-oriented, heartfelt, love is love, sexual revolution stuff. Do you follow? Um, and so unless we can unpack those questions starting with God at every point, we won't end up where Jesus ends up. And that's what the series will be about. We're just going to ask and answer the question, what is love, what is freedom, what is sex, what is gender, what is marriage, and see the logic of Scripture, which is just beautiful and leads to human flourishing. So hopefully that's okay. I'm really excited about it, and it won't just be me. It'll be a number of us speaking on the topic. So let's pause and reflect. Actually, what I would say, so my last point, is that uh, if we start with God versus starting with ourselves, we actually end up in different places. The two roads don't merge. They actually go in entirely different places. And, um, and Jesus says this. He says that wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So, so there's heaps of grace and there's heaps of room to stuff up and to repent and to get back on the road. 
Uh, we are not saved by our good works or by our great sexuality or by our discipline or our practices. We're saved by God and his grace on the cross. But there are, there are two roads and God is calling us to, to take the narrow road and every time we ask those questions, to lead down those narrow paths. So just pause and reflect. What might God be saying to you as I've framed this series and, and what questions do you have about love and sexuality? And I'd actually love to hear if I'm asking and answering the, wrong, the right questions as we go through the series. So just pause and reflect on that question. Okay, let's look at the Word of God. <clears throat> God's Word is one big love story. It's a love story about God and humanity with twists and turns and highs and lows, but it's a love story nonetheless. In English, the word love is found 550 time, one times in the Library of Scripture, 232 times in the New Testament alone. That's a lot especially when you compare it to other words, more than faith, more than repent, more than sin. It's amazing how much the word love appears in the New Testament. Uh, and Jesus came into the world to love the world, and without love there is no story. Which is beautiful. So let's read one scripture. And my defining point is I want us to see how God is love and how that shapes the entire conversation from beginning to end. This is by John, one of the disciples, and it's a letter uh, written to describe what it might look like to love one another in unity. It's actually less about sexuality and more about connection with each other. He writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So let me just go through this quickly. There's some beautiful, beautiful language here. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. So right there at the beginning, there's our foundation for the journey. Okay, the starting point comes from the fact that God loves us. Love comes from God. It was his idea. He created love. And that means he made our sexuality. It means he made our private parts. It means that he made our nerves and our skin and all the connections that we use to love one another uh, emotionally, physically, spiritually, sexually. He created our bodies to feel. He made physical touch feel so pleasurable. 
Just pause for a moment. That's really remarkable. Like when Adam and Eve jumped in the sack with each other, it didn't surprise God. <laughs> he made it happen. He invented us for that purpose. It's really amazing. And God's love is not limited to sexual desire. It's much broader. It's more creative. It's life-giving. Love comes from God, and God's idea is to love us. Full stop. So let's continue. John says, Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And again, I think this is remarkable. Okay, So John says, God is love. So basically, love is God's personality and character, and, and we know him by that. You know, the old joke, okay? Um, we watched Austin Powers the other day. Again, it's terrible. But they said, he goes, Danger is my middle name. You know, and, and like I think the same thing, you know, like danger is not God's middle name. Love is God's middle name. Actually, God is love. It's something like that, all right? Somewhere along the line. <laughs> love and God. Let's just go with that analogy. God is love. We'll stick with that. Um, and so because of that, it is impossible to personally know God and be born again and not be transformed by his love because love is his full name. You follow? And so John goes as far as to say that love is a sign of discipleship and when we love, we are expressing our apprenticeship to Jesus. And more so, if we don't grow in love over time as apprentices of Jesus, maybe we're not. Maybe we're not actually in love with him. Maybe we don't get what he's done to us and how he's loving us. As we worship God, we become lovers of God and we become lovers of one another. And that is the natural outflowing of our worship to him because God is love. And, and here is where, here's the rub, okay, and this is the central part of this passage. It's where our understanding of love so massively and dramatically changes from the love is love narrative of our culture that, that we really lose the ability to talk. It's the kind of pants versus trousers moment. John says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is a big idea but it's not a vague idea. Okay, This is a big idea. It is not a vague idea. And what I mean by that is love, according to John, is not vague. It's not anything goes. It's not whatever you decide to make it. Okay, It's not just a feeling. It's not just defined by what we do in the bedroom. It's not vague or vibey. It's not an undefined concept. It's quite specific. Our concept of love as apprentices of Jesus begins with a foundation and starting point that is specific. It is rooted in a historical event and is, is firmly placed in a spiritual reality that defines humanity. We understand love through Jesus. We understand love through Jesus, who came into the world as a sacrifice for our sins to rescue us from our brokenness and that darkness that was defeated came at a great cost to himself and that is where we find our foundation for all the questions that I asked previously. 
That is what it means to love. So this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He sent his son to accept and forgive and to bless and to redeem our lives from the curse of sin. And rather than selfishness, this sacrificial love is our primary imagination of how we discover what we what it means for us to love and to be loved. And it's first and foremost found through sacrifice and self-denial by a God who gave his life for us on the cross as enemies before we even loved him. <clears throat> and if that shapes our imagination of love and freedom and marriage and gender and sexuality, it, it's a game changer and it leads to a very different place from personal happiness-based satisfaction. Can you see? But we're using the same words, which is why it's so confusing. So the implication of what John is saying is that as we seek to understand all these different concepts, let's start with God, Jesus, and not ourselves. That's how we learn what love really is, by staring and gazing adoringly at the cross. And from this point, everything flows. The logic of love flows out in how we love others and how we conduct everything in terms of uh, our emotional relationships, our physical relationships. Because God is love and love comes from God, because God's love is seen on a cross in Jesus, it changes how we apprentice ourselves and how we love others. So John says we ought to love one another Not because it feels good, not because we have hormones, not because we are good people and are trying to better ourselves. We love one another because God first loved us. And and if you really get that, it's remarkable. Because we can't see God, he's invisible, but we can see God at work in the way lives are transformed and our love is transformed because he first loved us. And that's the gospel. So let us start with this foundation for every question we ask in this series. God is love. And as we seek to understand our longing for love, let's just keep going back to this. What does Jesus say about love? And what does his love on the cross do to shape our understanding and story and conclusions about how we are to love in this world. And as we start with this starting point of God is love, not just love is love, but God is love, it will transform how we express our longing for love in every way, whether it's in sexual relationships, community relationships, parental relationships, um, or even our relationship with the planet. So God is love. God's God's love is not specific. God's love is specific. It is not vague. It's not vibey, for those who remember the castle. And it starts with God. It doesn't start with us. So have a reflection. What does it mean to you that God is love? What does it mean for that to be your starting point? And, And then I'll conclude.
So as we move to communion, I just wanted to ask the question, what, what can we do with this? And I, I'm quite aware that this message was quite theoretical and I, I, I wanted it to be a framing of the conversation as, and we'll get more specific as we get through each topic in this series. But my heart, I suppose, is that through this talk, it will get us thinking and get us talking as a community and get us exploring what God's Word says about what it means for us to love. Full stop. You know, I think John's revelation that God is love totally transforms us. And I would encourage you, one thing I would encourage you to do is read and meditate on 1 John chapter 4. Uh, the one that we've just read, it's not long, but it'd be good to just read that yourself and ask the question, what does that mean for the way I use my body, the way I understand different gender relationships, for the way I interact with my kids, for the way I uh, engage with the, the, the questions that we see in the world around us? You know, start asking those questions of yourself. And as you do so, I'd really encourage us all to just have an open heart and an open mind to, to listen what the Spirit of God is saying to us. Because the way of the apprentice of Jesus, as we've explored time and again, is to repent, which is to change our mind, and to believe, which is to change our actions again and again and again. And when we stuff up, when we fall off, when we, when we make mistakes, and when we feel broken, we just keep returning to Jesus, repenting, changing our mind, changing our actions through belief, and, and trying to move once more down that narrow road. Now, not everyone listening to this talk uh, is an apprentice of Jesus. I'm aware of that, and I'm really I'm delighted and grateful for those who listen uh, who aren't necessarily followers of Jesus. But I think many of us who are apprentices of Jesus struggle deeply with the tension between what God says in his word about human sexuality and what our culture says is so normative that it almost defies logic to disagree with it. It's, there's such a tension being a, an apprentice of Jesus in this space, in this moment in history. And um, I believe that God wants to, re, to renew our minds and uh, to, to redeem our bodies. And let's, um, let's open our hearts. You know, when, when we hear God's word, do not harden our hearts. It's what we hear in the, the book of Hebrews. I love it. You know, if, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. So let's open our minds Let's open our hearts and just allow uh, God's word to marinate in our spirits over the next fortnight as we explore what it means that God is love and for God to shape all of our questions as the beginning point and, and as the end and for that to open up new possibilities. So I'd love you to stand and um, yeah, I'd love the band to come up and, uh, or whoever's going to play. And just let's have a moment of quiet and just reflect on how amazing God is, that he is love, that he created love, that he created us to love and that in God we find our identity and our expression of love. The Holy Spirit, we just thank you so much that you have made us to be sexual and spiritual people that the desires and longings for love that we have in our heart come from you. I thank you that you have a rich and wonderful plan for our lives and that there is grace and mercy 
every time we stuff up, and all of us do. And I pray that you will reveal something of yourself to us this week. And as we break bread and share wine, uh, remembering that you are the one who loved us first, even when we were enemies. Thank you, Jesus, and help us to become more like you through your grace. In Jesus' name.